Okay, welcome everyone to the Naked Guru Experience. Please do subscribe and like the content. That really helps us out. And a quick shout out to our sponsors, the Psychedelic Society. Today's guest is Rak Razam. Rak Razam is an alchemical storyteller with his finger on the pulse of tomorrow and the heart of today. A screenwriter, documentary, filmmaker, author, journalist, and culture surfer, his focus is on the cultural paradigm birthing in this brave new world. His latest documentary series is Shamans of the Global Village. He also leads ayahuasca retreats in Peru and works with entrepreneurs and consciousness leaders, coaching and advising on the legal global psychedelic renaissance. Hi, Rack, and welcome to the podcast. Why, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's good to be here. So, Rack, I've been pouring through uh, a lot of your online material, and you've been at this for a long time, my friend. <laughs> it's nowhere else to go, really, but in. Yeah. <laughs> so um, people may know you um, for, from previous work, I Awakenings, right? But but as you mentioned to me now, the the latest project is uh, Shamans of the Global Village. So I just thought if you could start with a little bit of an introduction to yourself and your work, what you're all about, and and, and what you're into at the moment. Yeah, thank you. So um, you know, I, I've been in this uh, this process of. Um, I guess you could say egoic destruction and rebirth that has been precipitated by the global uh, uh, events that we find ourselves in. And I've been asking this question a lot. Like, you know, like if everything continues to collapse, who am I? What do I do? And, you know, I've just recently relocated from my, uh, my home in America where I was living for about over two years and have come back to Australia. Uh, and, you know, I feel that wherever I am, I'm still Rakrazan, right? But there is something about the entrainment of a geography and about the, the zeitgeist and about the people you surround yourself with that you can be different versions of yourself, as I've discovered coming back to Australia. So originally, as you said, I've been working, you know, as a media maker. Like I started off um, utilizing my journalism skills and writing skills commenting on and documenting uh, psychedelic culture. I guess I sort of had my um, my virgin uh, voyage or, or, or journalistic uh, voyage at Albert Hoffman's uh, 100th birthday party in Basel in Switzerland in 2006, which is sort of where the psychedelic renaissance meme began. And I've noticed over the years there is a, a newer generation, a more millennial generation coming up through the psychedelic renaissance. But that old guard, that was where I sort of cut my teeth and I was, um, uh, you know, I, I was editing a book called The Journey Book, which was um, a compilation of people's psychedelic experiences. Uh, I then went to the jungles of Peru on an assignment, a freelance assignment, looking at the, the mythic archetype of the shaman, why that, why that archetype is so idolized really in the West, basically because we had extinguished it in our own uh, our own communities. And that experience became, um, well, that article became many articles, but it became the book, Ayer Awakenings, uh, which became a documentary film, Ayer Awakenings, which was released in uh, January, 2014. And since then, my work has migrated more to the visual medium and documentaries. And there was a kernel of an idea that came at the end of the book of our awakenings and one of the chapters there where I was like, 
you know, preparing to go back. And there's this, one of the conceits of the book, Our Awakening, is, is um, Joseph Campbell's heroic journey uh, template, which basically says that you leave the known world. That's the first step of the hero's journey. And this doesn't have to be a, a, a masculinized or, you know, pigeonholed. It's a, it's a human journey, right? But the first step is we go beyond. We go, we go beyond what we know. And, you know, in these current times when everything is encouraging us to stay safe and to stay within the, the boundaries of growing authoritarian control, this is a really important thing that, you know, the, the hero is, is essentially a sovereign being who is self-realized, that knows their place in the web of life, in the firmament of things, and can make executive decisions about how to live and how to be um, of, of use to, to the community. So leaving your known world is the first step. Having your initiation, which many of the psychedelic and entheogenic experiences uh, excel at. Uh, but the important thing then is to not just have a peak experience, it's to return, to return to the world you have left behind changed to share your wisdom or your your change with the community. So, you know, I um, basically felt like the it was like an eight or nine or almost 10 year journey uh, to, to finish our awakenings and to do the book and the film and get that out there. Towards the end of our awakenings, I realized as I was going home, this, this was the most important bit of sharing your wisdom or your change with your community. And I realized that I wasn't alone, that there was a generation of plant medicine um, seekers in the West who were all going home. And that it was like a ripple effect of this, what I called the global shamanic resurgence, which is almost like a counterpoint to the, um, well, not a counterpoint, a complementary point to the Western psychedelic renaissance, which essentially is the medicalization of psychedelics back into the Western medical model. Um, with all the capitalist uh, teething issues, um, but you know it, it's needed and it's 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 um, it's a good thing in in principle. But there's a larger global shamanic resurgence involving the plants which come from the planet, involving indigenous cultures which are the caretakers of them, and involving us, the seekers, whether we're Westerners or which part of the world, of this reclamation of this heritage and lineage of connection to the web of life, to the planetary intelligence, to who and what we really are. And uh, that was basically the, the kernel of the idea of uh, Shamans of the Global Village, that there is an uptake and a, um, a call to action of a modern generation of seekers, some of which uh, choose to work with these medicines and are going into their communities around the world. So for the past few years, I've been working on this documentary series, Shamans of the Global Village.com, uh, to explore a lot of these rich uh, themes around medicine work and the interplay with uh, the different cultures. Mm. Yeah, and I, I've I've purveyed the uh, the website and, and took a look through, and each documentary is focused on well, it, from from the looks of it, is focused on a specific uh, shamanic plants or 5-MeO DMT or ayahuasca separated this way. And just before we get to that, I did want to ask you, you did note a few things there. You said that we stomped out the use of psychedelics. And is it is it your belief that humanity was practicing these things 
you know, widespread. And then, you know, we stomped out, we burnt the witches at the stake and lost contact with them for a while. And we're seeing a resurgence on that. Is that, is that your view or? You know, these are the best questions to ask because, I mean, often, often we, you know, we have a short, short cultural attention span these days. And, you know, we see psychedelics in the media, post-Michael Pollan, we call it the Pollan effect. Everyone, <laughs> you know, the mums and the pops and, and the everyday people are hearing the message through all their trusted news outlets that yeah. psychedelics are valuable. Psychedelics are back again and that they can be used to heal stress and PTSD and, you know, for different issues. And that's all, all good and well. Um, but there is a, uh, a abundance of historical evidence from not just anthropology and academics showing that the, the roots of Western culture are entwined with an altered state's experience. Whether you go back to the mysteries of Eleusis, um, you know, uh, 2000 years ago or so, where people were initiated into the psychedelic experience. Um, or whether you look at, you know, all these cultures have, have had... Uh, some type of psychedelic or entheogenic or a psychoactive catalyst at their root. It, it seems to go back. You could even look at Terence McKenna's whole theory that the modern human uh, evolution of our brain structure and our consciousness is bootstrapped or catalyzed by uh, the magic mushroom somewhere in, in, in prehistory. Um, these substances are a part of our landscape, both interior and exterior. And, you know, I think the difference with prehistory is traditionally these substances in Western prehistory or the historical Western uh, antecedents were used in what we would have been called the mystery school model, where indigenous tribal cultures used them in for healing and for shamanic ceremonies and for, you know, connection. And it would be a lot more open and a lot more visible within their communities. In the Western model, they've, they've pretty much been... Um, invisibilized and kept as part of a, uh, a hierarchy of usage to certain certain sectors of, of the, those communities. But there, there's ample evidence that these things have been used for uh, thousands of years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you'd learned about witches before ever having a psychedelic experience, you'd think, well, what the hell? I mean, they're all just crazy. They believed in, in all kinds of crazy stuff. But after a psychedelic experience, one can assume what those witches, those witches were doing. You know, it's quite clear uh, they were they were, were playing around with these things. So well, a, lot, I, a lot of the witches also were were herbalists. They were women who worked with 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 the medicines of the herbs and the plants. Some yeah. of those plants may be psychoactive. I mean, you've got to realize that eventually, like if you trace it all the way back, everything is psychoactive. Everything <laughs> changes our consciousness, including food. You know, um, and, and that some foods can be medicines if they're used in the right way. And so there's been a, again, you know, this this overarching theme of um, control, of domination, of almost, uh, you know, of, of distancing ourselves from the planet and the wisdom of, of previous generations that have come before, because somehow that wisdom isn't patentable. Um, it can't it can't necessarily make money off it in the same way. There's a lot of different uh, invisible market forces that are, um, are the reasons why we have the world we have today, you know, and that world is disintegrating in front of our eyes. And so what is left? The old world or the planet, you know, the planetary intelligence, the medicines, the foods, the, the, the stuff of the earth. And I think it's up to us to re-engineer a relationship which is going to be more sustainable to, to, um, to, to that 
Yeah, now I, I've heard you speak, uh, I think you were in Australia at the time, and I heard you talk at some length about the idea of the dominator culture, which of course is a, is a McKenna idea as well, the, the dominator culture. And I see it in, in kind of facets of our community, in the psychedelic community. There's different types of us. Some people just want to get messed up. Some people are working with the medicines with, with respect under the cultural conditions. And some are very politically activated. Um, and, and it seems that political uh, activated uh, psychedelic community would kind of co-opt this message from McKenna and use it as a as kind of political ammunition. And so with what you were saying about it, like I'm in two, two minds about it. One half of me feels, yes, there's a dominator culture, there's serious problems, there's corporations, there's oil, there's, there's damaging of the planet. But then the other half of me is like, yeah, but isn't that the Gaian intelligence, the intelligence of the universe working through us in order to kind of push technology forward and transcend our limitations of the planet? You know, we could be hit by a meteor at any time. Uh, the, the sun could have a solar flare and we're all destroyed. So I have these like two, this cognitive dissidence. When I listened to you uh, today, it was like, yeah, but, but I, and I, I am fighting with those two things at the same time. Maybe you could help, help me on that. No, you ask good questions. I mean, this is true. I mean, you know, to, to go back, like Terence McKenna did populate the uh, the mimetic architecture of, of a few generations now, and he has laid the groundwork. And I, I think, you know, a lot of what he was saying about dominated culture, it, it really comes, it's, it's like this, this hierarchy. I mean, it, you have to sort of strip it back even further. Before dominated culture, you have maybe dominated individuals, right? And then in the individual, what, what it really boils down to is the sense of ego. And so this is where it becomes the psychedelic issue, is that we don't really know why we've got this consciousness. McKenna posited the idea of the, the magic mushroom on the savannah, and it was gaining a bit of traction in academia now, that idea. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, there are previous cultures on the, on the earth here in Australia, the, the Aborigines say, you know, that the Western term for, for their idea of, of consciousness includes this term, the dream time, or this understanding that there are different, um, different aspects or different uh, capabilities of consciousness, that, that this level of consciousness we're in now is um, a necessary egoic navigational tool. That's what the ego is good at. But it's to the detriment of our other capacities, both our imagination, which is like the magical act of dreaming in new pathways. It's not just daydreaming. The intuition of receiving a signal of, um, you know, being more tuned into that there's something. Basically, you know, in the egoic structure we're in now, we're cut off from the larger spectrum of consciousness, which is always being broadcast. And again, this comes down to is, is consciousness broadcast or is it received? Or is it, is it um, manifested, you know, in, in the human organism or is it received from a broadcast signal? Um, yeah. So these are, these are interesting questions. But if, if you come from that avenue, this idea about dominated culture um, sort of originates from the idea that somewhere along the line. And, you know, basically history is only almost 13,000 years old. Uh, and there was a, a near level extinction event called the Lower Dryas event, which happened around 12,800 years ago which also paralleled the move into agriculture and to different ways from moving from hunter-gatherers and setting off a chain of events, which, um, you know, dominated for me is really about, even in, in I think there's some written in the, the Christian Bible about dominion, the word dominion. 
over nature. So mm. it's embedded in the language, the etymology, the language, this separation from nature of falling into this ego state out of presumably a more connected ego state. We don't really know, but the, the possibility of that within which we were in relationship with, let's say, Gaia, let's say the planet. And it, it's not necessarily some hippie new age utopian that people didn't die, didn't struggle, it wasn't hard, but it was a different level of consciousness. So this level of consciousness we have now, we've um, been working with since presumably that extinction, near extinction event, the lower driest event, that trauma which has brought the ego forward to strive and survive and to dominate. Um, it's a classic sort of psychological um, victim perpetrator complex where we felt that we, we have been um, hurt and we have been abandoned and we have been uh, cut loose in the universe. We don't know our place in the universe anymore. And so we compensate by dominating the planet. And so on this level, I really believe that we have species trauma and that all of history as the culture, which is a cult of the survivors, has you know taken over the planet. It's done so from a level of consciousness which is projecting out from its wounding and from its disconnection and making decisions which increasingly are um, in service to not the, not the collective, in service to basically, you know, these constructs we've created like capitalism, like money, these invisible, ephemeral, magical ideas which now dominate our, our, our consciousness and that we live inside this, um, this container or, or, or this reality that we've created which is not real. You know, it's completely made up. We could change the rules of the game tomorrow if the critical mass agreed to change the rules of the game. This is what I say. It's a storyteller thing. It's a narrative. We're living inside the story. So this dominated culture over time has aggregated and there's been a domino effect of power, of control, of money, um, which just replicates and creates this world out of balance. And so on that level... I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's good. And I think that there's this great reset that is happening that we're starting to get into the event horizon of now. Um, and I hear you in a, you don't want to be just dualistic or have one side of the, the point of view. Yeah. On another level, I highly suspect, and this is just the storyteller in me, that the the intelligence, and it's not just the guy in intelligence, the source intelligence, the way that you know organisms and cultures thrive on a planet, it all yeah. sort of follows a certain boom and bust and certain, um, you know, rules of engagement and that there are not necessarily any mistakes. I mean, it's been suggested that even our use of um, uh, petroleum and petrol and like digging up. I mean, it's crazy. We think about that. It's like the, the artifacts of all the living creatures that have gone before, like the past becomes these petroleum deposits, you know, rich in, in, in the nutrients they have and that we dig them all up and we turn them into fuel for our vehicles to spread our civilizational blooming across the planet, but then it adds the carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And so basically we've speeded up a natural process, which has happened before with global warming. I read a great book. I forget the author's name. It was a British journalist, but it was The Sixth Great Species Extinction. Mm. And she was a science writer um, in England. And I think it was like the second or third great species extinction was a global warming phenomena that, that, you know, went across the planet. You only have to rise a couple of degrees of temperature to change the homeostatic balance of the whole planet. The, the seas, you know, get warmer, the microorganisms die off. The seas are warmer, they absorb more, 
carbon dioxide from the air. It sets off this whole chain of events, which obviously in this iteration of the events we have contributed to. I'm not denying that in any way, shape or form. Although there does seem to be a, a pushback of um, some scientists looking at the role of um, incoming solar radiation and the, the galactic um, solar, you know, um, energies coming in, solar the energies coming in. Anyway, the point is, humans have a very short target window of what we think of as normal. And for the last 13,000 years or so, between the interglacial periods of the ice ages, we've had a warm enough conditions that we spread like a fungus or a virus. I mean, you know, my, my shorthand intuition for this is in the organism of Gaia, in the macro organism of the planet, we're like one strand in the planetary biome. We're like humans are like one strand and we've spread like a fungus and we've overpopulated and we've destroyed all these other species and they're going down fast. And so the organism is gonna reset itself, whether that's through outreaching with, you know, ex well, we're getting extreme weather, but the, the reset has to come because the bacteria will kill the organism unless there's a reset. Gaia, the mother, knows what is good for her. And at the moment, we're not. So on some level, yeah, it's like, have we just blindly overreached our, um, our niche? Which on mm -hmm. one level, yes, that seems to be um, biologically what, what is happening. But on another level, it comes back to what is our purpose? If, nothing, if, if everything is interconnected and everything's playing a role and we've contributed to the planetary environment, um, it, I, 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 I hold out for a possibility that we don't really understand our role and that we've been doing things in the long term that are part of a larger process that's still unfolding. I mean, there seems to be a concentration of evolutionary development, you know, a concentration of a focalization of intelligence, as it were, uh, with, with certain abilities. So nature has gone from the fish to the animal to the, to the primate to us, to the, to the iPhone, to the AI, to the spaceship. It's like a, a focalization of technology. If if it had just stayed without humanity, how could it ever get off the planet? You know, and it seems to me nature wants to move forward. Nature wants to. You put the bacteria on the petri dish, it it finds a way to get off, and it seems to be pushing ever outwards through through us. And um, you know, on on that, if if we can agree, which I, I think we do, that money is an illusion. You know, countries are an illusion, nationalities are an illusion. In essence, the idea of Rack and Ryan are both illusions as well. Um, just categories, concepts that we've made in, in the mind. It, it is all really just kind of a, a oneness happening and unfolding, and its intelligence is beyond our intelligence. Could we then say that it doesn't really matter where it goes? Because there is no death, there is no, there is, all the, death itself is a, is a concept. Yes, you could say that. And I mean, and many, many, you know, scholars and sages and, and uh, mystics throughout time and many psychonauts have said that when you get like that cosmic giggle, when you get that understanding that it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. And when we're in dualism, when we're in, in, in this, this state of being, we, we can't help but not feel complete with that answer because we're like, well, of course it's got to matter. This is your life you're talking about. Yes, these are illusionary, I and mean, this comes back to like, you look at the, you know, some of the Eastern terms like samsara, you know, or, or it's, it's illusion, but it doesn't mean it's not real, right? This is the thing. I mean, I guess the modern theory would be the simulation theory where it's just, 
another you know you know linguistical conceit on a, a very age-old concept that this isn't real but there's a purpose to it and so this comes back to well what the freak is our purpose are we playing the game right are we getting it right are we getting it wrong and i mean none of this makes sense unless you have a context so this is why you know we're seeing you know the resurgence of interest in psychedelics and shamanism and things like that at the moment there's a lot of medical value that that's the safe path in for these substances back into the the western culture but it's not really just about that a lot of the the healing of these substances is almost like a byproduct coming from um, reducing the mind reducing the ego allowing the mind body soul to reset itself to god's default settings you know the the this ability to heal and ability to know but you know if you take even the the um they did a um they did a reprisal of the infamous good friday experiments with uh psilocybin and magic mushrooms which was conducted at the divinity school at harvard in the 60s and rick doblin did a follow-up study i think it might have just been a um a written questionnaire but essentially these people in a controlled set and setting basically said that the the psilocybin experiment was you know i think it was nine out of ten said the single most profound experience of their lives and yeah. it's not that they were dying of stage three cancer or something and they needed to have this because the government said it was okay it might heal you what it is it connects you to an internal truth of your being I mean, this is what we don't know when we live in the mind. The mind is one part of our operating system. But if we live here, we're not connected to our true being. We're usually in the mind and not in the body. So we're not even in the body, which is another evidence of trauma, of, you know, of that, that escape or that um, withdrawing from the fullness of our being. But we also aren't connected to each other or to nature. And we're not connected to source consciousness, which a lot of the Eastern traditions say lies within us. And uh, the potential on these uh, psychoactive medicines can acutely reveal almost instantaneously in some instances, if you look at substances like 5-MeO-DMT, within 10 seconds, you can reveal the living, intelligent, raging, loving, radiating superunion of God within you. And this isn't something which the mind has to go, mm, I'm not sure <laughs> about that, right? It bypasses the mind. In fact, it needs the mind to lower for the full capacity of our organism to receive the signal. We understand on deeper levels, deeper networks than just the intellectual mind. That's the ego. And this is why psychedelics have been called the antidote potentially to history, because history is the march of the ego dominating the planet. And yeah. so if psychedelics or psychoactives in the right set and setting with guidance can provide a sense of reconnection, and this is, you know, at the root, again, of all the language, the, the Latin for the word religion is means to reconnect or reweave. And then you've got to ask, well, what are we reconnecting to? Or what are we embedded in, right? This whole thing that we don't even see anymore around us, you know, because we've screened it out, we've filtered it with our egoic connection. Yeah. So you know, this reconnection um, seems to be the promise of the, these, this, this time that we have to go through an ego dissolution, both individually and it's seeming at this time collectively as a planetary culture because yeah. it's not working and there needs to be this great reset. So this 
addiction to the ego states, this addiction to the cultural support mechanisms, whether that's TV or shopping or, you know, all the things that we used to be able to do, those things are going away. They're changing and whatever the new normal is becoming. But I actually believe that this is, on a spiritual level, you, it's unmistakably a planetary ceremony. It's a letting go of everything you thought you knew. It's that, again, the, the Joseph Campbell, it's the, it's the letting go of what you knew. And we're going through an initiation. And so it's a, it's a beautiful time, potentially, for people who have had transformative psychedelic and shamanic experiences who understand the terrain in, interiorly of what is happening in the world to reach out and support themselves and each other, you know, yeah. because there's some experience here in uh, traversing the ego death states. Yeah, no, beautiful, beautiful. And you really just articulated it there, what is on a lot of our minds that are, that are in this, this community. I know for me personally, it's been a, a process of death and rebirth in one body until you kind, your own shit is dealt with. And then you kind of go deeper and deeper into the collective mind and you realize what's being born here is not me. It's not my problems that are being solved now. It's collective trauma that's being solved. And what's being birthed, you know, this, I think it was, um, I think it was Paul Selig I was listening to about this. Uh, and he was, he was saying, we've gone through the gestation period and now it's the birthing period. And the birthing period is very intense. And like you say, I think we, what is it we can do? You, you know, you're making the documentaries, what we're doing with the podcast here is one thing. What, what is it What is it we can do to kind of help that? To to say to everybody, you know, surrender, it'll all be, it'll all, be all right, you know, everybody chill. I mean, do we just need to force psychedelics out there a little bit, a little bit further? I mean, do we need better access to the tools? Do we? Ultimately, um, it all comes down to context. If you can understand the originating context, then you can understand which direction to flow from that context. So if we're just working from our minds and our egos uh, and we're trying to ha like force some type of psychedelic experience on the masses, that's not going to work. That's not no. consensual. And, you know, they say you can't awaken uh, a, a sleeper or a dreamer until they want to awaken. It's dangerous. You have a duty of care. All the same rules that apply in the psychedelic experience. Hopefully, if you've done that, um, you know, even well, the, in the shamanic realm, we, 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 we talk about containers. We talk about ceremony. And it's not that it's necessarily religious or dogmatic. It's that you have a container to do the work in with an opening and a closing. And in that space. You were looked after, you were supported, you were held, and you know that you can actually release whatever you're going through in that safe container. So all these same rules, I think, apply to the planetary ceremony we're going through now. Um, you know, this is, no one told us that, they, that we're going through this. They've, they've slipped the psychoactive into the culture and no, nobody's noticed. But um, increasingly, people are freaking and tripping out, right? So we need to have a context, again, for who we are, right, and where this is going. Because without a context, it's all fear-based. And the mind is what fears. The ego is what fears. It's there to help us navigate, to make decisions. It tells us, like, oh, my God, you know, tiger attacking, get back. Or, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's the classic sort of terrestrial um, navigation support, right? But it's not, it's not in control. And if, when it thinks it's in control, 
uh, that's when things go wrong. And it, you might say, okay, well, what does that mean? It's like, look, we've got 12,000 years of history. Of course we're in control. We've built civilizations. We've built buildings. We've, we've built statues. And now they're getting torn down. It's like we're living our lives, but unless we know what we're connected to or what we're not connecting to, we're, we're just blind, you know? And, and so what, what I see happening is there's this letting go of the old, there's this planetary sort of ceremony that's going on or transmutation, like an alchemical transmutation of the species. And basically, we're being called to let go. And this is the classic symptom or stage of the psychedelic experience. Are you fighting it? Is your mind resisting it? Are you trying to stay the same? Are you trying to hold on? And that's what creates the flashpoint. That's when people have challenging psychedelic experiences. Michael Pollan, in his book, How to Change Your Mind, when he did the, the Sonoran Desert Toad, he had a, a, a pretty challenging experience because he's a very intellectual guy. He's in his mind, and he couldn't let go. You know, It shows you where the edge is, but unless you can let go. So often I find um, you know, with people, for instance, continuing the 5-MEO um, example, it's easier to let go when you can trust and not just trusting your facilitator um, or trusting that you're going to survive this experience because it is an ego death and rebirth and it can feel like you are dying, but it's just the mind which is letting go. There's the famous uh, quote from the, the poet Rumi who says, you are not the drop, you are the ocean in the drop. So that individuation, that sense of I-ness, I, I am this drop. You know, but and you are another drop, but you are separate. That 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 can go. What science has shown is that the default mode network, which is this regional cluster at the back of the head, um, psychoactives switch that off or lower that to a certain degree, and the consciousness of the eye can go traveling into the spectrum of different stages of consciousness which are out there. With five meo, the sense of I is the journey, and it's switching off the sense of I to then reveal from these deeper networks of your being, which are still present to witness and, and feel and intuit, that you are the ocean, that your dropness, your individuality has been subsumed and remembered back into that oceanic unity oneness. That is the originating source. And that is what many world religions say, what many of the Eastern paths and traditions say. That is what the psychedelic and entheogenic uh, experience can lead us to. It's not just any one sacrament or medicine, it's vibrational. The more you increase your vibration and lower that mind, the more you go back to the white light source consciousness. Unless we understand that sense of reconnection, we don't have a starting point. So we're always holding on to the collapse of Western civilization, to the ego, to everything that we've built. We're not willing to let it all go. And unless we can trust that there's something bigger than us that is driving the whole show, then our, we're going to re re resort to our egos because we, we don't trust that it's safe to let go of control. So, you know, we still think we're in control. So where do we go with all this? I mean, at the moment, we have the global pandemic, we have quarantine, we have all this stuff happening. At some point, hopefully, the quarantine and the pandemic is going to uh, slow or extinguish with or without a vaccine. And of course, um, your own immune system is your best defense from anything. If you talk to any, um, you know, uh, any um, experts on, on viruses and virology and all of this, 
It's like we have them as part of our, our biome and as part of our organism. It's like they're part of nature that are designed to bring out sickness, to induce the, uh, the fevers, to kickstart our own immune response syndrome. But we don't actually get stronger or better by avoiding things entirely. And I'm not using this as a critique on modern vaccination theory. There's a, a time and a place, and obviously <laughs> this could be the time and a place for this type of thing. But what I'm, I'm focusing on here is human beings are designed to engage with nature. Nature has viruses. Nature has diseases. You know, it's like, but the, the thing is, in the, the larger species, uh, the strengthening of the species, we don't, we don't move forward as a species by avoiding things. We sort of got to, we've got to tackle it and we've got to um, re reweave our connection with nature and we, with a healthy immune system we can do that so you know coming out of this uh this initiatory crisis which i believe is what we're in what does the psychedelic community do with this i mean there's going to be a cascade of further crises as we see the economic collapse which is already um imminently coming in and you know, on some levels, this is probably good because we were a, a, an unsustainable global civilization extracting resources from the planet because of our disconnection and our um, our almost willful ignorance of uh, the repercussions of what we're doing. We just ignore all the oil spills, all the decimated communities, all the like. You know, history is, is full of the horrors of history, are the horrors of what we've done to ourselves. So. The psychedelic entheogenic shamanic experience, the, the grand potential of these experiences is to know yourself and to reconnect to something greater, whether that's the web of life, whether that's your subconscious, whether that's God, right? It's up to you to define, but they're all just words, just like we know in the ego game, Ryan and Racket just labels as this thing, but there is something greater that these experiences allow us to touch and feel and know in a way that is much deeper than the mind. And that knowing, that connection is a strength because it means that there is something more than us and there's something more than us running the show. And so then if we know that, we have to ask ourselves, how can we come into alignment with that greater force? Whether you just call that nature, right? The force of nature which has built this pristine, originally beautiful womb world to cradle life, right? So that alignment with something greater should be the impetuous of any civilization. It doesn't mean you can't have great advances. It just means that all those advances should be um, environmentally friendly, right? And that I think that we have this great reset where even in the mainstream of psychedelic medicines are coming in, at the moment, just for um, you know, uh, medical issues, uh, but there's a greater psychic um, amplification and empowerment that is the true uh, gift of these substances. And at the moment, the mainstream isn't letting that in, but we have a global shamanic culture all around the world. This resurgence we were talking about at the start, and at the moment, you know, I've got a maestro, Percy Garcia Lozano, who is a um, a beautiful, pure, and trustworthy uh, curandero in Peru I've been working with for 14, 15 years. He's in my documentary, Ira Awakenings. Uh, and like all the other uh, people in Peru and the, the curanderos and the medicine people, 
they're in quarantine, they're in lockdown, all their, uh, all their resources have dwindled. Um, it's back to the bread line and feeding their families. And it shows that even within the modern world, this global shamanic resurgence was part and parcel of that global dominated culture. Because without it, we wouldn't have had the, the, the assembly lines, the global, um, the infrastructure for travel to these countries. I mean, there's, you know, discourse and there's criticism about, you know, extractive um, industries and um, exploitation of indigenous people and medicines and the sustainability of things like ayahuasca. And there's very real concerns. And that snapshot, that generational impact of the West discovering plant medicines in the modern day and age, which has been a, a long generational thing, it, it has reawakened within ourselves the awareness of these spaces. But at the moment, even those spaces are largely curtailed. So how do we even ceremony with these substances during a time of quarantine and pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, a lot there, a lot there to take in. But it seems that there's a paradox of the whole situation, you know. You're raping the Amazon of ayahuasca, yet it's required in order to, you know, get, get, get the, the Western mentality, the materialist mentality opened up to this, this new horizon. We are also, we have the problem with planes and corporations and things, but we're complicit in it. I think that's one thing that many of us in the psychedelic community that really think these things through struggle with because we're the ones jumping on the airplanes you know and then we're saying you know there shouldn't be any airplanes we <laughs> you there's a there's a hypocrisy a complicity a com complicity in in the things that are destructive to the planet whereas this puts a, a hold on everything a forced uh, a forced well, uh, you know, there, there are ways to do it i mean when i when i first had that intuition back in 2006 it's in the book i awakenings it's like well, this is it. I mean, how do we continue this relationship with the medicine that I discovered in Peru? And I was like, well, I guess we're just going to have to do it in our lounge rooms, our backyards, you know, back in our home countries. And that's exactly what happened, that there was a, a generation of seekers who were called to work with the medicine and have trained with the indigenous lineages to different degrees and are now caretakers of the medicines in the West. But it's all underground because, the, I mean, but I mean, you know, there can be great benefits from these substances and there's all these issues again you know of appropriateness within the medicine world but in general the medicines are trying to get out to engage with the humans that need them and they're doing that through the vectors of capitalism and the the the, the structures that we've created because there's no other way right i mean yeah. there's, there's some useful models you look at santa daime some of the ayahuasca churches where basically they do collective ceremonies where it's not about the money. It takes the financial sting out of things where they um, pool their resources, they make the medicine together, they distribute and, and go in ceremony with the medicine together. I think cooperatives are the way forward in the West with medicine work, where we can all uh, share the relationship with the medicine and the, the resources to, to you know, um, work with the medicine but again, because it's all underground, it's very difficult. So you have a lot of movements in the West at the moment, which are very promising. You've got the decriminalized movement, which started like in Oakland um, and has moved throughout America as over 50 cities have decriminalized, which means on a local level that law enforcement have been instructed by their councils to not prosecute or criminalize plant medicines, which is crazy. I mean, it's great. It's fantastic. But the, to yeah. think that the average policeman has any idea what ayahuasca is, <laughs> to find them, you know, 
DMT is or or the fact that that 5-MeO DMT in that bag is synthetic and illegal, but that one from the toad over there is is from nature and is decriminalized and legal or not illegal. I mean, it, 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 it's crazy, but I mean, it's promising in that there, um, there are networks. There's also been in the last decade or so growing global networks of integration groups, which is vitally important for psychedelic and shamanic culture. I mean, the, the real work begins at home after the peak experience of the ceremony. I mean, hopefully you've had um, a good, if not cathartic or challenging experience in your, your, um, your medicine experience. But then the, the changes from the illuminations you may have received in ceremony, that's what happens when you put it into practice back in the world in that heroic return. Yeah. And so there's been a lot of um, integration groups which has sprung up around the world. There's a decriminalization movements sprung up around the world. There's a more visible um, community, which is all about these medicines in a responsible and professional sort of way, which is paralleling now this interest from the post Michael Pollan sort of book and all the media about psychedelics. So, you know, so there's, there's so much interest that there seems to be, you know, new sprouts coming through um, the, 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 the line there of this culture, whether it's illegal or legal or decriminalized or whatever, everyone's feeling the tide turning. And so I think it comes down to in the very near future, I think it will be permissible, you know, in more and more places around the world, which means perhaps we can localize. I mean, the future is all going to be localization. Globalization has died. They haven't announced it yet, but it's gone. I mean, yeah. the airline's dying off, the, the multinationals are dying off. Everyone's a, working from home. Telepresencing yeah. is coming in on 6G technology, I saw recently. Everything, which is what is needed. That'll cut down on a lot of emissions, et cetera. But then it's like, how can we do the hard work then of forming communities? And, you know, one of the great benefits of this, there's tribes in the Amazon that work with ayahuasca. And, you know, these things are ego dissolving. Yes, they can have um, health benefits. And a lot of those benefits come from when we release the the stranglehold of the ego and the mind, and basically any energy trapped in our energy bodies or our emotional bodies, which is what in many cultures, including Chinese medicine, they believe that the, the root cause of physical illness comes from the buildup of other subtler energies in the different etheric bodies. So as the mind lowers and you release these traumas, there can be health benefits, but to a large degree, the social benefit and feeling of connection that can come from a community having a shamanic experience together is unparalleled. There's only yeah. been really, I think, one, one maybe two studies done back in the 90s with the Hawaska Project, which looked at not just the ayahuasca use in the Santa Daime communities, but looked at the container of the communities and how that potentiated and um, assisted in the integration of, of, of those people. So imagine if you have a localized community in the future that is growing your own food, potentially making your own energy with solar and renewables and doing psychoactive ceremonies together in a safe and supported set and setting where it's not only not illegal, but it's socially um, not just accepted, but, but it's not even glorified. It's, it's respected. It has yep. a place because that ego dissolvingness of the ceremony is what helps release all those social tensions, you know, and to have the, the cohesion as a, as a community. So, you know, I, I think there's great potentials for the psychedelic 
uh, community around the world. And I see the root structure network of those integration groups um, and those decriminalization movements uh, as sort of um, the, the foundation of how medicines can get into the local communities in a safe and supported way. Yeah, I think some fantastic points there. And, um, you know, particularly on integration, the importance of integration is not all about the plant medicines, about how do you bring it back into the real world? How do you apply it with your mother, your father, your sister, your friend? And, uh, you know, one from what personally uh, spoke to me there was when I finally got sober, I was addicted to alcohol for a long time, a musician traveling around Asia. And uh, when I finally got sober, it was through LSD. And afterwards, I couldn't find anybody to talk to about it. Uh, I mean, I couldn't even talk to people that had taken LSD because although they'd taken it, many of them I spoke to were just like, yeah, well, I got high and that was it. It was, a, it was like a different experience, a different category of experience. And so I went to AA and in AA, one of the qualifications of AA is that you have to admit you're an addict. But I was past the point of being an addict, identifying with the ego. And, um, and, and the, the other thing with AA is you're not allowed to talk about entheogens because of the nature of the people around. So you have a beautiful dynamic there of people that are talking about spirituality and God and the universe and, and, and healing. However, it, it's almost like the elephant in the room. But, but, you know, Bill Wilson took LSD to found this. Bill you know? Wilson took LSD to cure his alcohol. AA was founded on LSD. He was actually going to introduce LSD into the program at the inception, but he was talked down by other people in the, the organization. Well, I was told not to mention it. So, and, uh, you know, so I just started a website called rememberingourself.com, which is, is really about this, about exactly what you're talking about is how do we find you know, other niches of people that can talk on, on a certain frequency. I mean, we're doing it now. You're doing it in your documentaries. Communities are starting to gather. I'm newer than you are to this. So my question to you is, are you seeing this exponentially happen in the past year or so? Or is, are you talking over the past five years or 10 years? How, how is it looking for you? Yeah, it's definitely exponentially grown, let's say, in the last 15 years. In that 2006, I mean, Albert Hoffman uh, uh, Symposium, he was mm. 100 years old. He was alive and well and in full faculties. And he was the chemist who had discovered LSD or LSD had discovered him. Um, but, you know, since that in the world media and there's been a concerted effort, you know, mainly by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which for over 35 years now has really been championing bringing these uh, substances back into the medical fold. But through that, uh, that work and um, getting the results and the peer-reviewed results they, they have, MDMA is sort of lined up, which is an empathogen, not a classic psychedelic, uh, but psilocybin is, is coming in fast behind it, um, into, into the mainstream again in the medical fold. Um, and all the world media have fallen over themselves to report on these substances in one shape or form. They don't really differentiate really between psychedelics and, as I would say, entheogen, something which from the Greek to invoke the divine within or the plants. And, um, but there, there is, there's, just a, there's just been an explosion of interest. And so it's, it's almost getting to the point now where I do not think that the sustainability of our culture can accommodate the new arrivals. Because, I mean, you know, millions of people, New York Times bestselling book, or millions of people are now hearing about it. Yeah, they all want to go through their, their doctor and psychotherapist and sign up for 
six MDMA sessions at like $6,000 through their insurance program. A lot of people won't be able to um, afford that. There has been a growth vector of uh, facilitators uh, and underground therapists who might work with things like MDMA, psilocybin, things like that. Of course, because it's underground, there can be, you know, questions around the safety or the, the, the ethics of some of the practitioners. It's hard to say. But what you're getting is a community self-regulation where the community is in charge of self-regulating their practitioners. And there's a lot of dynamic feedback in regards to that. Um, but it comes down to, again, at this point, when you have seven point, I think we just crossed 7.8 billion people last week on the planet. And, you know, um, a lot of those might be first and second world. And what we're really talking about here is the, um, or the second and third world. Uh, we're talking about first world people here who are sick, right? And it's not just they're sick with the physical ailments that the, um, the medical pharmaceutical industry is, is treating and not curing with, with all their big pharma drugs. It's a malaise of the soul. When I first went to Peru um, 14 years ago now, and interviewed a lot of different uh, shamans, or they call themselves curanderos, they were like, yeah, you Westerners are sick. And even if you don't have cancer or don't have you know, a physical disease, it's actually an illness of the mind. It's that disconnection we're talking about. It's this, a lot of Westerners are searching for something, and they might not even know what it is. It's because there's not that sense of connection, or they're not that sense of depth. It's like they're going through the robot motions of a good citizen, you know, from cradle to grave, and they're never really living. You know, yeah. the, the, the true depth of the human experience is to feel both love and pain, but to feel a connection to the majesty of what we're embedded in, this gift of life. And we don't often get that in the nine to five. And so people were going down to the jungles of Peru, not just in search of ayahuasca, but in search of meaning, in search yeah. of connection, in search of something which would make them feel alive and that life is worth living so they wouldn't have to take the antidepressants that Big Pharma is pumping out of them, right? And yeah. so that question still remains. And so even if there's like a billion Westerners who want to engage with these substances, we owe it to ourselves as a community. And this, when we say community, there's no real one psychedelic community globally. There's a lot of factions. There's the medical community. There's the shamanic community. There's a lot of egos and infighting in all of the global communities with psychedelics, just like there is with everything else. Um, and we still, it would be, it would be wonderful to have a, a more robust global discussion on the sustainability of the medicines, because there are ways to scale up, like psilocybin, the magic mushrooms is probably one of the best ways. But yeah. what we're seeing now is we're seeing big money coming on the back of MDMA legalization and uh, psilocybin, like Oregon was just voting it in to, I can't oh. remember if it's dec decriminalize or declassify it. But basically, yeah. um, the big money is coming in to synthesize psilocybin, which is potentially what is needed. But, you know, the way they're doing it to scale it up for mass market, it, it, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel necessarily, I mean, Potentially, these substances need to be sustainable, but the ways that the the Henry the Henry Ford Model T assembly line of global culture scales things up in the industrial model doesn't have soul, right? No. And when you don't have soul with these medicines, when you turn them into drugs, when you take something sacred and make them profane, you have potentially 
the brave new world that Aldous Huxley envisaged. Which yep. I must say, Grant Morrison, my favorite uh, comic book writer and uh, visionary writer, was one of the the showrunners for the um, the Peacock adaptation of Brave New World. It's exactly where we're headed of Soma for the masses, for the ones that survive the coming transition. Um, but yeah, we, we we need to we need to return the sacred. And again, these substances have the potential. Sometimes when it's in a guided container, there's nothing wrong with recreation. But essentially, recreation for generations now with psychedelics has partially been a form of rebellion and, and obviously exploration. And it can be hit or miss. There can be, you know, unsupported environments where people can have negative experiences. And a negative experience is not a bad thing in a psychedelic experience. It's part no. of facing the shadow. It's part of facing what you haven't been willing to face. But you need to have the right people or support there, you know, and be in the right environment to process the deeper things and not out in a party environment where you can't, stuff's coming up and you can't face it. But in many cultures, in tribal cultures, they understand that from the transition from, let's say, um, well, let's say boyhood to manhood, that women essentially have their own form of initiation. Girls have their own form of initiation into womanhood with menstruation and their periods and their moon time. But boys often don't. And so in tribal cultures, psychoactives were often a form of initiation from boyhood to manhood to make them feel connected to something larger than themselves. And so when that hasn't been um, entertained in Western culture, that's when we go out and we self-medicate and we self-initiate to have an experience of initiation to connect to this thing. We know life's all about, but we don't know what it is, but we want to feel it. Mm. So that's to say there's nothing necessarily wrong with recreation, except um, it can be it, it can be done in a more supported way and that recreation can be initiation. And so, you know, I, I see that there's potentially a very mature discussion we could have as a global society on this is the fucking time to pull our finger out and use all our resources to transform our global civilization. And if psychedelics and entheogens and shamanic medicines can't assist in that, what the fuck can? <laughs> because these are uh, tools of consciousness par excellence, right? Yeah. They can do it in a moment. You know, yeah. there might be hours of a ceremony or with the shorter acting entheogens like 5-MeO, um, they can change your life in a moment, right? And I'm not suggesting that these substances are for everyone or that everyone should go rush out today and try to experience this. What I'm suggesting is a evolution of the current capitalist shamanic psychedelic network across the planet into something more, which is essentially what tribal cultures have. They have a tribe, they have a family, they have mm. a structure of both authority and support, which can create a container for these substances for your initiation and your healing as part of that initiation. And, you know, back in the 50s, LSD was used, I think the last legal study done by James Fadiman, who is still alive and you should interview, yes, he's like yes. the, oh, the godfather of microdosing. But he was looking at the, the usage of LSD as a creativity tool to think outside the box and getting amazing results. So when you, you, you loosen the default mode network and your consciousness 
I mean, essentially, you can receive the answers. You can, you can actually, you can actually get what you need, right? Or beyond what you exp- you can grow beyond your programming and yes. the cultural programming. And this is the time, more than ever in human history, where we need to grow beyond our cultural programming. And again, the way to do that is to know the context of who and what you really are and what you're embedded in. And from that perspective, align with those universal energies evolving forward to Mm. let go of the old civilization and bring in the new. And that is the best way forward. And I think psychedelics and shamanic medicines have a pivotal role to play in that in the right safe, sacred and sound container. Yeah, I mean, it's no accident that Silicon Valley is this hub of technological evolution. I mean, it's uh, LSD fueled there, you know, and and like you say, it seems these things are doorways. They're not magic pills to, to your trauma. They're doorways into the one, into the universe to go back through your trauma, heal, heal yourself, but within context. As I was saying before, you, I meet people that have taken these things and not had the same experience I have or what Stan Groff talked about or what you're talking about. Uh, It's not happened. And I think that's because of context. In your point as well um, about the the Western sickness, I live in Bali and and there the Hindu culture, they're not very sick. They already have that that universe, that God-shaped hole. um, Did I I miss you there, Rak? Oh, you're right. Yeah, I, I say in, in Bali, they already have filled that God-shaped hole. And so it's, um, they're, they're not missing anything. They already walk around and look at everybody as if they were God, as if they were Atman. You know, it's, it's just so culturally there that, you know, I've, I've been talking to friends and I, I tell them, you know, I had this experience on such a plant medicine and I realized that me and you are on the deepest level are the same. They're like, well, yeah. You know, we knew that. We've been talking about that. I, I love that phrase, the God-sized hole. I mean, this is the thing, you know, we've gone through cultural movements where, you know, modernism, postmodernism, God is dead, all this other stuff. It, it's like they're all just cultural reactions to to the, the battery farm of, of modern global culture, which, you know, it, again, which it used to be that the, the most rewarded thing was this sort of intellectualism, which is not embodied. It's, it's again... <laughs> To me, part of the trauma, you can be the smartest guy on the planet, but if you're not in your body or in your heart, you know, if you if you can't reach out and love and be loved, then what the fuck good is your smarts, right? It's like that God-sized hole is is something that I, I don't even know if it's politically correct to say the word God, right? I mean, whatever your word for that is, even if you say nature or reconnection or meaning or yeah. or you know, whatever, but there's yeah. something, and if you haven't felt it you're missing out. It's not that better or worse or elitism. It's part of your human condition. It's your birthright. We are designed to connect to not just nature, but to source within. But we have these blockages. And at the moment, it's the ego, which is the biggest blockage we have. And so I think, you know, regardless of trying to save the economy or or, or even save the planet, it's like we're looking outside of ourselves from the ego's perspective to do something. That's been the, the hardest challenge the last five months for me is to not do anything, to be yes. passive, to allow yeah. myself to be carried. I had to leave America. I had two children. I had to come back for them and for other other reasons. But, you know, I had to allow myself to go with the flow against 
all my egoic um, entrenchment of holding on to my home, my house, my job, my everything that defined me. And when you strip all of that stuff back, you're still you. But it's a question of like, well, what are you learning? I mean, at the core, this is what you have. And, you know, we're designed to respond um, to the environment and the environment is rapidly changing and our culture is rapidly changing. So we're being called to step up and to rapidly change in tandem. And again, not to change from a sense of ego bargaining, because this is it. We're, we're going through globally the five stages of grief. We've been in denial. Yeah. And, you know, behind behind Corona is the economic collapse. Behind the economic collapse is the ecological transformation. You could say collapse. The sixth great species extinction, 97% of all species going very, very rapidly. The global warming, the acidification of the oceans, the food chains breaking down, the plague of locusts in the Middle East. I mean, our, our economy is embedded within an ecology and the ecology is saying, you know, it's going off the scale. It'll be okay, but we're not going to be okay in the same relationship we've had with it. So, mm. you know, we really need to evolve forward and fill that God-sized hole. And the only way to do that is to let go. These five stages of grief have been um, denial. And people can deny as much as they want, but we've sort of almost let go of that because we've been panicking and we've been going through the next bit, which is like, I don't know, is it the fear, denial, fear, anger. there's rage, anger. there's anger and rage. We're seeing that, you know, and it's not to say that issues like the Black Lives Matter do matter and that they're, they're valid, but they're embedded, they're triggers within an embedded cultural matrix of a lot of festering energies here. And, you know, that anger is coming out as part of this process of, of of letting go so then you get to bargaining eventually culturally it's like all right so we'll, we'll we'll let go of these emissions or we'll let go of this level of civil life but we still want this and it's like yeah. and then eventually you get to acceptance so we're, we're going through this planetary grief um you know stage and we're all at different stages of it but i mean my god this is it that hole needs to be filled and this is also a great potential. There's, we've never had the potential we've had to basically recreate a planetary utopia or mm. have a planetary dystopia controlled by, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten G surveillance culture, automated workforce, cashless society, smart cities, monitored, like, like China is at the moment. You know, in China at the moment, in schools, they've got these Muse-type headbands which are yeah. reading brainwaves. And yeah. if the child daydreams away from the lesson, it sends an alert to the teacher and a text message to the parent at home. Yeah. And it then negatively impacts their social, social monitoring score. And everything is so monitored. And that's where we're going in the West. That's what we're racing to catch up to. It's either Isn't planetary dystopia or planetary utopia. But it's like, you can't make these decisions, you know, without context, you have to have context. And so the information warfare going on online at the moment is just, it's clouding and it's that bargaining and denial. And it's like, no one really seems to understand the bigger implications. The sixth great species extinction has begun, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Arctic back in June, in summer melted. I mean, the Arctic ice completely melted. The, the flow through effects from that were all the floods in China, which are also creating the conditions for the insect plagues in the in the in, in Eurasia, which are then impacting the food. And now there's going to be like, you know, this next season, there's going to be like 
planetary food shortages, supply chains disrupted, all because of what's happening in the planet. And we're ignoring that and we're just commenting on the, the pandemic, but it's all connected. I mean, like you say, in China uh, with these children, it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that humanity does that to humanity, this, this control, the egos, um, the collective egos kind of forcefulness and manipulation and control of young human potential. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it, it's again, another um, kind of pointer to why this is necessary. We can't just go on like that, you know? Uh, it's, it's necessary change. And I think like you, I've come to the point where there's no point in being on either side of any argument really anymore. The thing is gonna play itself off of itself. The intelligence that's at work here is, is arguing with itself through other. And so to kind of sit back and be carried along with it and realize that all you really have is this body, this beautiful gift of a body, which you get to, you know, you get to use and walk around with and, and just enjoy the simplicity of a hot shower or some strawberries and just these brilliant luxuries that we have, these, these simple things that are just actually all you fucking need. Like you don't need a house with 20 rooms. You don't need three cars. You don't need this stuff. And and we may have to adapt to a system that says not only do you not need it, but you can't have it because, because you, we have to prioritize just, just getting by, just surviving. You know? and, and that could the realistic implication of that, it could be the death of me and my family. That's how serious it could be. I mean, that's, that's, it's not like everybody, it's just going to happen to everybody else and I'm fine, you know, sat in, in, in my ignorance and bliss of it all. No, it could result, my family are in Thailand, we've been separated for seven months. It could result in the death, political uh, upheaval in Thailand could result in the death of my family. It's pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff. But if you're in tune with, with the divine consciousness, with the universal consciousness, then there's some kind of hope there. There's some kind of uh, uh, belief in it, but kind of a realization that ultimately it's not real. You know, you know what? I think I think that's the key. It's it's very astute observation of you. It, it, it sort of underlies our whole conversation. It, it, it's almost like a faith, and you know, faith is pretty much derided. You know, in in the modern you know age, but it's like if you've had a entheogenic experience of that sense of oneness or connection or or just belonging to something bigger, it's no longer faith. It's something that you've experienced. It's 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 yes. sort of fact for you. It's it's not just that you're hoping against all hope that there is something bigger. You know it. You felt it. Yeah. And that's why I think with all these changes that the people who are still working just from ego, and we're all working from ego, but if it's an ego which has has experienced uh, letting go and knowing there's something behind it, then you can at least have that hope that there is hope it's almost looking yeah. pretty grim but basically we've gotten to the, the point within the next decade where you know using the example of china that they can basically indoctrinate and control and not just monitor and surveil everything culturally down to the nth degree like everything everything you do everything you do online everything you're buying the ais basically are um data crunching and they they know you better than you know yourself. They know what your habits, your likes, your dislikes. They can weed out of the populace, the black sheep, the dissenters, the ones who could go rogue. They can create a homogenized 
breeding pool of humanity that's wired up in their smart cities and after a generation won't even deviate from the thoughts because they'll be entrained with the brainwave reading things to keep on track. And this is totally Orwellian. It's the whole idea of like Newspeak of taking out of the language, the concepts, which are the building blocks of, you know, diversity of having different thoughts. So we are right at the cusp of basically planet Orwell. And can we still have hope almost against against the, the, the flow of history, that this egoic dominated culture, egoic model, which is now being epitomized, you know, not just in the nation states, but in even in individuals and how we're reacting. And we're, we're almost wanting, we're almost wanting Big Brother to save us from these viruses and pandemics and, and you know, succumb to, to, to this control. But is there something bigger behind even that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like a pretty clear-cut four-dimensional reaction to environmental circumstances and the technological capabilities in those circumstances. And yet, is there something even bigger working its its hopefully benevolent machinations behind the scenes? Yes. And I would hope there was. But, I mean, you've got, again, you sort of got to have faith. And it's yeah. not as if you don't, like, yes, the game is just a game. The, the, the simul- simulation and the, and the samsara, but it's also real. What they're, they're, yeah. they're not saying that this is not real. They're saying that this is a level that is embedded or in even David Bohm's holographic quantum theory, you know, projected from an implicate source, that there's something bigger, there's something more. And that is the thing which is in control. Now, yeah. if you look at the all of human history, that benevolence doesn't sort of like stop itself from wiping out entire no. civilizations not right? in the material world no no because again there's a human conceit that we're the fucking center of the universe and it's actually not the truth we're one strand within a planetary biome there's all the other species and there's the organism of mother earth herself she's what's alive you know and then going probably on in the web of life into the galactic ecology that there's larger organisms that we are just microscopic little details of. Yes. And and so, you know, what what is the point? Do we succumb? Do we do we hoard ourselves back in culture to protect ourselves from nature, knowing that if we do so, it seems like it's total dystopian Orwellian control, where they can basically, you know, um, er- erase even the freedom of thought, where it'll be this groupthink. That's really within the grasp of this generation of those in control to do. And a lot of us, it's looking like, are going to march up to that protective thing because they just want to be protected. But if we have this planetary initiation, and here's one little, one little ray of hope. For many years working with ayahuasca, you know, it's got a lot of... Um, a lot of good press and a lot of good understanding that it can have health benefits and also it's very visionary. It takes you on this journey, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what, what it seemed to me that ayahuasca and even the other entheogens are doing is that they were cleaning us out and they were cleaning us out and that would result in us being back in health because we're designed to be perfect. We're designed to be these optimal vessels for the divine uh, consciousness having a human experience. Exactly, and, you know, it hasn't yeah. built these vessels to be maladapted. We're, we're, we're designed not only to adapt to the changing environment, but we're designed to be as perfect as a human can be. We're perfect humans, right? 
And yet, what we've done to the environment has, to a large degree, created maladaptions, which then reflect on us and degrade us, whether that's our food or, you know, our cultural um, intake of what we're doing and shutting off. Um, but we're designed to be perfect. And so the plants and the, the, the psychoactive medicines, when they're switching off default mode network and allowing consciousness to travel into the greater spectrum, it's having this byproduct that you can use your, your freed up consciousness and you can work with, for me, in the instances of spirit of ayahuasca and zoom in on a place in your body where you've got an issue and you'd feel that she's, she's zooming and scanning and putting energy there and doing things. I've been in, in ceremonies where the curanderos have, you know, taken out uh, an organ on the, the etheric level of a being and fix it up, clean it off, and then put it back in. And then later you hear anecdotal stories of the person having good health, right? There's an energetic layer. Anyway, yes. what I feel are happening is the plants are cleaning us out to reveal our divine nature and to reveal our health. And then once we're optimal, we can do what they do. We can connect to the planetary intelligence. We can connect to divine source. We're designed to do this. Yes. What many decades of meditation, they've done EEG readings on meditators and with 5-MeO-DMT, the same areas of the brain, default mode network, the, the parietal lobe, the frontal lobes, exactly the same things are happening. Yes. We are designed to connect to the greater energetic ecology. And it is within us to do. We have tryptamines. We have NNDMT. We have 5-MeO-DMT, penealine. We have all these psychoactive substances in our consciousness, regulated in our body so we're not tripping all the time. But we have the on switches just waiting to be switched on in the species. And, you know, the plant medicines, I think, and the, the shamanic medicines are like training wheels preparing us for a time when we can do this ourselves. I've worked, I've worked and I know many people that have used uh, 5-MeO-DMT in countries where it is legal, um, who are meditators who then are able to use the channels that it has opened and the mind comes back, but the channels are all clear and open. And once they meditate, they just go back in every day, every yes. day, that relationship with source. We yes. can do this and it is time to do it, right? And so my yeah. great hope is and it's a bit deus ex machina, the God and the machine, the happy ending at the end of the movie. But, you know, there is the potential pathway, which if you've had these experiences, you know that it exists. You know that there's an intelligence, many times a loving source intelligence that has our own best intentions at heart. If we look at human history, it doesn't mean that we don't get decimated by earthquakes or floods or famines. But it means that there is something to connect to. and also not to take the human game so seriously. Obviously, we take it seriously. But if we could remember who we are, that these bodies are just, you know, a four-dimensional emanation of a 12-dimensional spiritual being, if yep. we could then realize we're born into the ecology of the biome of Gaia, and like in the, like the our biome, everything has a place. The viruses have a place. You know, the enzymes have a place. The food has a place. We didn't build these bodies. They've been built to have a purpose. And part of that purpose is to connect to a larger system, a larger energetic ecology. The plants do it. The animals are in a certain consciousness of feeling the connection. We've fallen out of it. And so even though there is the potential for great transformation, devastation, and societal collapse, there's also this potential for renewal and rebirth and letting go of the construct, letting go of the story. I mean, on a, on a 
on the planetary level, it doesn't matter. The humans are doing what they're doing for better or worse. And we still understanding the bigger context and life, life will go on. And it's our ego holding on to life, the attachment, because we fear death, because we don't know what's on the other side. And, yeah. you know, when we say death, what we're really saying is dying. It's the verb. In my yeah. shamanic experiences, I have felt subjectively I have returned to the great ocean of unity where we come from and where we go back to. And you can see it in my film, Iron Awakenings. We actually recreate that, that experience of going back to source. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's something that once you've had that experience, you don't fear it in the same way, but it makes life more valuable being here because you realize it's a gift and you want to align and contribute to that evolutionary flow, which is doing something. You know, that's what we really need. We need the meaning in our lives of knowing we're contributing in whatever time we have to the life equation, to, to the culmination of why we're here. And on a small scale, that can be as much as you know, sharing love, being with your family, you know, it's it's not, it, it's up for grabs. But I think we're coming up to a time when we're having a civilizational conversation. It's almost like that we need to talk about civilization. <laughs> but like, like you say, I think the separation we experience is born through the intellect. It's born through these conceptual frameworks, which we hold, which are broken down by these entheogens. The, this idea of uh, him, her, um, self, other, past, future, all illusions, money, um, and and the idea of death itself. The other, the big, the biggest cosmic giggle when when one realizes that there is absolutely no death. There is really no fundamental birth. It's all being, and it, it, because there is no past and future, it never happened and it can't happen. It's, just, it's an ongoing process perpetually in the now, and it is all one happening and all one energy happening through it all, beautifully uh, unfolding in, in perfection. Although on one level of analysis, it seems like chaos and disorder. On another level of analysis, it's absolutely perfect. A little bit like the immune system in the body is fighting red blood cells and white blood cells, but makes another level of order. And, and I'm sure there is a level of order that we don't see the upper room, as it were. But, um, but Rack, you know, it's been a real pleasure um, talking with you, and I won't hold you for too much longer. We've gone past our, our allotted hour. And so I just wanted to know where can people find out more about you? And So I've, I've been using the, the lockdown time to, like, go back to my website, rackrazam.com. You know, as we said, 15 years worth of um, content, and I, I just haven't been a web person. I haven't uploaded it. So I am slowly migrating of like 10 years of back content. I've got about 100 interviews and transcripts and uh, videos and things, which over the next few months will be coming onto rackrazam.com. Also, ayaya-awakenings.com. You can see the links there to the book, Eye Awakenings, and the film Eye Awakenings. Uh, and if we ever uh, are able to travel internationally again, uh, I, I usually do. I used to do retreats in Peru every June, which I'm hopefully will still be able to do. Um, and the latest uh, series is shamansoftheglobalvillage.com, which uh, we were lined up to do episode three in Peru uh, in July. So again, um, there's some great content there. Uh, and you'll see on my my uh, 
website as well. There's a link to innerperfectworld.com at Podomatic, which was uh, for 10 years I did a podcast as well and talked to lots of um, psychedelic and consciousness luminaries. Uh, so that's about it. And what I'm working on now is some screenplays. Basically, I want to get these psychedelic ideas out into Hollywood because, again, I feel that, you know, the medicine of this connection to something bigger, um, it, it's it's all in the public arena. The mainstream's heard all about it. But I think that Hollywood is ready and the people are ready to feel and to go on a journey on a larger mainstream level into these realms to experience this sense of shamanic connection to something larger. Um, and that's really what I'm focusing on at the moment. Beautiful. You're a busy man. Very busy man. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Rag. Thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully I'll see you in Bali one day. That'd be lovely. I look forward to it. You, you've got a good analytical mind. I've really enjoyed this interview. And uh, oh. I'll definitely promote your show. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Thank you.